a lot of time talking about the benefits of therapy, specifically how it has benefited my life in a positive way. Every day, I am grateful that I was able to find an effective therapist my very first try. And I mean my very first try with therapy. I've gone to support groups and church stuff and group sessions and found out very quickly that was not for me. It was not a helpful approach. And sitting around a bunch of other people who are basically grasping at straws for me was not effective. But fortunately, my ancestors watching out for me blessed me with an amazing therapist. Her name's Rebecca Cochran, and you have heard from her on our very first episode. And she has made my journey so easy, so comfortable, and I am so grateful. But it's not always that way. And I think that's something that we need to acknowledge, that it takes time to find the right therapist. It can take months. It can take years, a lot of years, especially to find one who is qualified and caring, someone who takes the time to get to know you without rushing to judgment or without preconceived notions or stereotypes. And I think it's important that we talk about those experiences. It's important because we can learn how to navigate through them and get to the glory on the other side. And when I say glory on the other side, I mean a space of positive mental health. So today we're going to talk to Sophia Carter. She is an amazing woman out of Chicago who has gone through the fire to find the right care. And because of her experiences, is doing everything she can to make sure that others have access to that kind of care as well. So let's get into it. I'm Angela, and this is Sessions with My Therapist. So hey, Sophia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Very excited and pleased to be discussing mental health concerns today. It's always a topic I never get tired of talking about. <laughs> I, I, you know, as, as my journey has progressed, I love talking about mental health. And I, I just want all the people around me in my in my energy space, in my atmosphere, to, to feel as good as, as it feels too. And it's not always great, but to feel good about progression in their health and to take it seriously. Yes. So I am and very glad that normalizing these conversations. Absolutely. I definitely want to normalize these conversations. And I want them to come from a place of just regular, ordinary people, not some psychologist or psychiatrist giving you the facts and the figures, but real life experiences. So again, I appreciate you coming on. And uh, today's topic, we're just going to talk about our experiences with therapy. Fortunately for me, I was a good, I was a one and done. <laughs> mm-hmm. I found a, a therapist, but it took a while. I tried groups and all those things and realized that those settings weren't for me. But I, I was lucky enough to to hit the jackpot with my therapist. What was that like for you? What was your first experience with therapy and what prompted you to seek it out? Well, my first experience with therapy was in college, uh, my freshman year. I would say the period between maybe my senior high school and my freshman year in college would be when I really, really first began to experience symptoms of depression. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that it had a name um, or even that something was um, disordered or disease, as harsh as that sounds about me, as, as opposed to me just um, internalizing and thinking, well, that's just me being negative, but that's just me being um, too sad or me not. That's just me being lazy, you know, not having the energy to get out of bed or do what I need to do today. But that's kind of what depression does. It, you say and believe negative things about yourself. But I knew, or I guess I had heard or gotten the idea somewhere that therapy was helpful. So I went uh, to our college counseling center where um, I now know that um, a lot of interns or students go through is they're mm-hmm. learning how to be therapists, which means sometimes um, the quality of care or the intervention is not as strong as it would come from an experience, experienced or more seasoned therapist. Right. So, um, bless her heart, I'm sure she meant the best, but she just wasn't able to help me. And I found that we spent, our sessions just ended up being time for me to cry. And I didn't really say much and just have somewhere to just cry for 
um, an hour where nobody would tell me to stop and, and just get, give me room to do that. So I would say if she did anything well, she definitely made space for the motion, but I didn't find it helpful. So I, I quit that mm-hmm. and I probably did not end up back in therapy until ooh, for years. It would be years before I return, will return to the quote unquote couch. Um, and I, oh, I, I recall actually, <laughs> it's almost hard to leave this out. I, and I, um, I coincidentally ended up back in therapy because I enrolled in graduate school to become a therapist. And one of the requirements was that we had to go through therapy ourselves so that we could experience, understand the experience from the perspective of the client to build compassion. Um, And I didn't want to go. I was like, oh my God, why did this is (laughs) about to be a waste of my time because it had previously been a waste of my time. Um, yet there I was, you know, trying to be a therapist, right? So the point is, you know, well, if you don't want to go, how are you able to convince someone else to go? And so as a result of that, I ended up having to like cycle through so many therapists until I could find one that was um, the right fit. Mm -hmm. So I I had, um, obviously I'm a black woman. I had a white therapist who um, I would say would try to over-identify with me racially to try to... Uh like as opposed to as opposed to just being herself um she would try to use language that I guess she thought was hip and cool because I'm black you know and it was just it was I awkward. imagine it it was so awkward yeah <laughs> so I was like okay this this ain't it so then I um I tried another woman I remember and I, I, I remember thinking okay well the white woman didn't work so let me let me, let me try to work with the black woman because of course for you know we don't have flaws too that with a sister who uh, she tried to do my first session at initial initial session where you really like so this is why I'm coming to see you and this is what's been going on you know you want some privacy she um, met with me in a public cafeteria oh wow and I was trying to hold a session there and I'm like trying my best to whisper like why are we having this HIPAA compliant conversation uh-huh. in not a public space and she was a professional she was a professional she was oh. a white professional with more than ten years of work. Oh <laughs> And then at the end of the session, she was just like, okay, so um, you have daddy issues, and that's going to be what we work on. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I came in here and said I was depressed or, you know, experiencing this. And somehow um, she wove a weed that um, in her 40 way that it was just daddy issues, and that's what we need to discuss. So I was very frustrated that she wasn't even trying to, she just missed the elephant in the room. Right. Um, I'm like, okay. Never went back to her. Um, and and I said, okay, well, you know what? I'm just, you know, two didn't work out. That's fine. Let's keep it trucking. Had a third therapist who was also a black woman, and um, only had three sessions with sessions with her. She was, um, she didn't come across as kind or compassionate. I, I almost got the sense that I irritated her, and also having been on the other side of the couch now, I can I can acknowledge that therapists have their clients that they can't wait to see mm-hmm. and some that are more challenging for them. And I got the sense that I was one of those more challenging clients that she had because um, she told me that I had severe. I remember her being the first person to use the word severe to describe my depression. Okay. Um, I'm like, okay, well, at least somebody's, <laughs> at least somebody's acknowledging I'm depressed. Wow, that's, it took a lot just to get that far. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she um, also, um, like, again, very early in the three, three, seeing a therapist for three weeks is nothing. Like, people see a therapist for years. So three sessions in is a bit much to be making, like, large grand conclusions about mm-hmm. someone that you've only spoken to for a couple of hours. Um, but she told me, um, she said, um, you know, every time you come in here, you know, I make a suggestion for you and you shoot it down. I'm starting to get the sense that you don't want to be helped because you don't do anything I say. I'm like, why well, you just met me? Like, give me a chance. Grow some patience. Right. Who <laughs> um, right. ain't that? I mean, that's part of depression, the resistance. Like, well, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I could just get up every day and, you know, go exercise or jog for 10 minutes, whatever it was you asked me to do on my own, of my own volition, I probably wouldn't be here right now. Right. Like you said, it's severe, which means I'm going to be a little resistant to the, get up, you know, exercise, do this, eat fruit, um, interact socially more, get out there, call your friends, call your mom, go see somebody, socialize, um, take, you know, take breaths when you need them. 
And I'm like, well, you know what? If I was that, if I had aced self-care, lady, I would I would not I be, wouldn't be here. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't be here. I'm here means I'm struggling and I don't, you know, and she just was not ready for the challenge. And I believe therapy is a journey. It's not a quick fix. Um, okay. I I relate it to like um, personal training. Like for some reason, people want to go into therapy quickly and be fixed. And sometimes the therapist also wants a quick fix because they, they're tired and maybe they're burnt out. It's a long-term thing. It's not something you do. It's a lifestyle of being in therapy and always in having reflections and making room for growth mm-hmm. and making room for mistakes and, and learning who you are and learning more about, you know, being in tune with what you're feeling and how what you're feeling is influencing your behavior and the consequences of like really having those conversations with yourself and then in the therapy room being vulnerable enough to share that journey with another human being. Right. But that's a deeply spiritual experience. I'm not a very religious person. I don't even know how to say spiritual, but to me, if anything was to, for me to be a spiritual experience, I would say it's what happens in that room when it's done correctly. So I even though I had those poor experiences, I did finally end up finding someone. I know um, this time I gave up on race. I was like, okay, clearly race is not <laughs> the primary factor here in finding right. race. And ended up finding another white female to do therapy with who turned out to be very helpful, more accurate with diagnosis, and definitely more patient. Like, like sometimes <laughs> I think about the the journey or the the year that you know she was with me, and I'm like, man, that lady stuck it out. I was a mess. Right. Um, <laughs> she earned that paycheck. So <laughs> she earned it, your fees. <laughs> she earned it. Um, and I. Case in point, no, it, it wasn't cheap. Um, mm-hmm. Nothing of quality is, nothing of value is cheap. And I think, I, I do believe there's a problem with access to mental health care that is real. Yes. That people of you know, certain status, socioeconomic classes do not have access to mental health care. And if they do, it's not of the same quality that someone Absolutely. that makes six figures could, could um, access. Absolutely. One, before I say what I'm about to say next, let me be very clear that I understand the systemic problems in healthcare in general and especially in mental health care. But there's also, I would say, out of all health professionals, um, out of all doctorate level health professionals, psychologists earn the least. I think the average income for a psychologist is under six figures. Mm-hmm. However, they take out about the same amount in student loans. So you don't get into the business to be rich. You you get into it to seriously help, knowing you're about to go into incredible debt and that you probably would never be a baller, but you make it enough to make a steady living, you know, take care of you and your family. So I know a lot of clients, you know, balk at our fees when they see them. And I'm like, man, if you could see, <laughs> if you could see the itemized bill for the rent, the lights, the this, the that, yeah. taxes. And then see the actual dollar amount I get to take home. You would understand like this is this is enough just to keep, you know, to keep us keep um, afloat. Yeah. Yeah. Keep us, you know, middle class, uh, whatever American. So there is there's problems on, on both ends. Um, and some of that is caused by an insurance company. Some of that is caused by piss poor uh, health care policy at the mm-hmm. Government level, and some of it is is a small part of it is still greed, sexism, and racism, and classism, and all those things. And you you know you mix them in one melting pot, and then you have the problem we have with the quality of mental health care and um, the appreciation of mental health healers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, as a person that, that lives on both sides, like I said, both sides of that room, I can see like there's so many systemic issues, um, but that speaks to as a society, how much we value mental health care or the stigma that exists towards mental illness. If you ask me what the primary culprit was, I would say it's that mental illness stigma. I agree. So how have you navigated? So comfortable with sharing your diagnosis from? Oh, yes. That's like the whole point. Okay. <laughs> so I, um, I'm 34 years old and I with this whole journey of being going into therapy and having someone tell me depressed and then finally finding someone to help me treat it. It wasn't until um, March of this year that I was properly diagnosed um, as having bipolar two disorder. And now, so I know a lot of people say, wait a minute, didn't you just say you was in graduate school studying? Now, how did you not know uh, that you were bipolar? I'm like, man, 
for what happened. But those disorders, bipolar disorder, some of them are, I don't know, I'm using my air quotes, quote unquote, severe disorders, schizophrenia, psychotic disorders, things like that. People don't even have the self-awareness to know that what they're what they're doing or what they're experiencing is a result of illness. People outside of them looking and can see something's not right. Right. Your, they can't even call it a licensed professional. It takes time to formulate the diagnosis. So yeah, and yeah. actually the and I'm not and I'm not um that's not an unusual experience. I like to quote this statistic, but the average time span between the initial onset of symptoms and the receipt of a proper diagnosis is 11 years in the United States. Wow. So and actually like not far off <laughs> from that status, and that's partly because it takes time. Mm-hmm. Uh, to observe someone, to understand what's really going on. Because with bipolar disorder, the majority of the time you're in a depressed state. And then every now and then you might be- you become manic or hypomanic in the case of bipolar too. But the majority of the time, that person is probably experiencing symptoms of depression. If you only stay with the client for three months or the client only stays with therapy for three months, it's very possible that those manic episodes that let someone know, oh, this is bipolar, not just depression, Mm-hmm. Um, once you need to be able to witness the manic or hypomanic episode to say, oh no, this isn't just depression. This is a bipolar disorder. So again, you have to think of therapy like personal training. If you go for four sessions and come back out like, oh my God, I wanted to lose uh, 50 pounds. And after four training sessions, I only lost two pounds. Okay, so you have to stay with it. Right. You have to let someone see you for an extended period of time to watch the patterns in your behavior, mm-hmm. the patterns in your relationship to be able to make connections between, you know, what you learned as a child or what your experiences were as a child to how you see the world and interact with the world as an adult. Nobody's going to be able to figure that out about you. Right. And session, like I said, with that second example of therapy, it's like, okay, it's daddy issues. Let's go to work. No way you can know that from one hour, two hours, or even three hours with the person. It takes time to develop a high quality therapeutic relationship as is true with all relationships between two people. If, it, if it's gonna be a good one, it takes work and time to build it. Right, so what was it like for you once you got the diagnosis? How did you oh, feel? Oh, I was pissed. Okay. <laughs> I was pissed, I was like, oh. You know, I was just reviewing my own history, interacting with mental health professionals, like none of y'all got this diagnosis. Like I know why I didn't get it. Like. Clearly, I know I didn't get it because I am bipolar, but y'all didn't catch this. The point of me going to therapy is to say, hey, can you take a look at me and tell me if you see anything weird? And so I'm like, how you looked at me and saw something weird and didn't say anything? And um, I got to actually got the diagnosis because my old psychiatrist retired. And so I had to find someone new and I found her and she amazing. Oh my God, I'm so grateful to have found. Once you find a good doctor, I don't even <laughs> I don't care if it's a podiatrist, like mm-hmm. once you get a good doctor, I sit with them and she is excellent. Um, and after our initial intake session, she said, okay, it sounds like you have bipolar two disorder. She said, but I won't know that for sure. You know, I've only spoken to you once. Let me consult with your therapist, get those records. And um, I had been hospitalized. She's like, and let me get this from the hospital. You said you were hospitalized. I said, okay. So I contact everybody's contact to release records and get them to her. And she informs me um, as she's going through your race, like you were diagnosed a long time ago. And I'm like, what exactly? She was like, no one told you? And I said, no. She said, it's all bipolar two, all in your records. I was in so much shock. And then also like confused, like why would you not tell? In, In what other health profession does someone have a serious illness and we let them walk out the door and don't tell them. Mm-hmm. We let them walk out the door without a treatment plan. We let them walk out the door without the right medicine. We let them walk out the door without the right community connections. And um, my psychiatrist is not black. Um, she's a woman of color, but she's not black. And I was not expecting this from her because I'm like, I really don't feel like bringing race into this because it's black people, like you have to pick your battles because mm-hmm. people accuse you of bringing a race card at everything. And we're like, because it's everywhere. Like, right. it's, it's, it's not us. It actually is just insidious in, in our lived experience. Um, so I, I wasn't going to bring it up, but she did. She was like, you know what? She was like, I think this is pure racism. 
She said, I think if you had been a white woman or a white man, you definitely would have been told about your your condition. You would have gotten excellent treatment. You would have been taken seriously. She was like, the only time I see craziness like this, it happens to be with black people. And she was like, there's just so much racism in healthcare. Like she was not attributing it to any else. She was not here for it. She was like, this is racist. I conducted a study just a couple of months ago for a grad school project where I looked at representation and how African-Americans were represented on websites and on media. It's always their their addiction. It's, it's an addiction. It's a drug. Their mental health condition, it has to do with addiction or drugs or alcoholism. It's never the schizophrenia or bipolar. It's none of those things. So that makes sense. And I've heard that a lot of professionals are apprehensive about diagnosing bipolar disorder. Is that, have you heard that too? Yeah. So I, one of the people I went back to was my therapist. I was like, uh, so how long have we been sitting here and I've been bipolar and you, you missed it? Like, how did you miss it? And um, you called it out like that? I actually, I canceled all my sessions for a month. I was like, I, I really like, I need a month. I'm so mad at y'all as a group. Yeah. That I can't, I need a month, which bought, which bought a lot of people like, okay, you just got your diagnosis. Like, are you just having this emotional reaction? And uh-uh, no, I'm in my right mind. I'm just pissed. Mm-hmm. And so after my breath, I came back and I was like, listen, this is why I didn't want to have a session. I, it was because I didn't want to come in here and be disrespectful because I was so angry that I didn't know what I would say when I got in here. Like I needed time to really absorb and take in and have compassion towards you as a person mm-hmm. and towards whoever else I met so that um, I come correct. Cause I do believe in not letting the mistakes or the behavior of other towards me mm-hmm. ruin my emotional state. Like you can be a bigot, you can hate me, but I'm not going to hate you back. And I'm not going to sit here and stew in your hatred. I'm going to just wish you love and compassion. I'm not going to go my way, mm-hmm. but you're not about to bring me down with you. So I'm like, I don't want to go in session like that. <laughs> but when I came back, I was like, I was like, I was upset because I've been seeing you for God knows how long and you you never said anything. And she said um, she she had as like very, very recently began playing with the idea that she thought I might have a bipolar disorder. Um, but she said she probably missed it because she's like, that's not my specialty. And I hear that because. I know most of the therapists I know are specialized. They found that one thing that they're going to treat and that's what they focused on. That's the research they stay up to date on. That's topics that they speak on. You know, like if if I had had an eating disorder, like this would not be the right therapist to see. We might have great chemistry and like it, but if, if you're not trained to treat that, you're not trained to treat that. And I need to find someone who is. And she was like, I just had, she just had to acknowledge like a weak area. She was like, that's not, that's not my strength. That's not where I've chose to specialize. So I, I'm not as I'm probably not going to recognize it as easily as a psychiatrist would, because a psychiatrist is more likely to come in contact with people with more severe disorders on a daily basis than a psychologist would or um, psychotherapist would. So I was like, okay, that answer makes sense, but I'm still mad. <laughs> so let me ask you this: as a someone who's studying the profession, are you guys introduced to these disorders? I mean, just even on a kind of surface, general yeah. level. Yeah. So notice that wouldn't it be say, look, look, I think I'm not sure because this isn't my specialty, but this is what I've observed, and I'd like to refer you to da 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 da. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> trained on trained on all the disorders. We know we we cover them. But I would say think of it like the same when you think of a physician. You have that generalist, your PCP that you go to see, and you know my flares, um, or I got this weird cough, and they do what they can do. And then, like you said, they recommend you off. You know, well, you got this issue with your foot. I did what I can do. I'll refer you out to a podiatrist, somebody mm-hmm. more um, that's strong in that area. However, what happens sometimes is in our training, not just the classes, but like the clinical hours you have to do before you can get licensed. If you do your training at, again, I'll use an eating disorder center and you spend your whole training assessing and treating people with eating disorders, but you never in that training come across somebody with bipolar or schizophrenic or schizoaffective disorder. If you've never seen it, I read about it. Mm-hmm. But I've never actually had a client that had it. And then the exact opposite might be true with the other person. Well, I did all my training at a substance abuse rehab center. 
I know everything there is to know about addictions and addiction treatment. I'm not trained to know when somebody, you know, I've never seen bulimia in person. I don't know. She looks a normal way. How, why would I know she's going in the bathroom and binge and vomiting after, you know, binge eating? I've never seen it before. So, like I said, I could have that compassion towards her that way. I'm like, I don't know what your training is. And it may be very possible that this is the first time you're seeing it or you just weren't trained in that area. So, yes. But to your point, the other side is, well, do after how many sessions does it take to at least see, you know, I think I might need to refer out. So that's where the rage came. But the compassionate side of me was like, OK, you know, I haven't been in the field. I can't understand how technically might be weaker in assessing and diagnosing that disorder. So we had a kumbaya moment. <laughs> we cool, we cool now. We cool, okay. Because I was I was big man for like four whole weeks. Yeah, um, I would have been, been pissed. <laughs> it's equivalent to seeing spinach on my teeth and not saying anything. Yeah, exactly. You saw a booger in my nose and yes. just <laughs> the job interview. But while we making a joke about you, I was like, hey, I could have died. Absolutely. I killed myself in the span of time that I was diagnosed and nobody told me and I was going untreated. So, yeah, you know, again, understand the lack of training, but somebody needs to have should have caught that. Like, absolutely. absolutely. Years in my life that I went untreated and was just out here like a wrecking ball because nobody had properly diagnosed me and put me on the right medication and the right type of outpatient treatments and things like that. I didn't have to be hospitalized, but that psychiatrist, again, she got stuff moving and shaking very quickly and has made sure that I got top-notch care. Right. We're going to take care of you like you white. <laughs> Ooh, okay, please, because I, I have not received that yet, and that's why I'm 34 whole years old. Having seen probably or, or interacted with or cross paths with 20 plus mental health professionals and finally get to the point where somebody says, I'm going to pause mm-hmm. and I'm going to be concerned about you. You're going to matter to me. I'm going to spend an hour, hour and a half to two hours. She actually uh, spent three hours, three separate days doing my intake. Okay. So that intake is just supposed to be that first 30 or 60 minutes, usually what most doctors do to get a really quick summary of you. She was like, no, I need three hours. I need three hours and I need to talk to your psychologist and I need all your medical records. And then I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to get you the right treatment. And that's exactly what she did. Again, it's, it's systemic issues like all left, right, front, back, underneath, on top that interferes with like, getting that care. Some of it is us and our own cult- cultural underpinnings. A lot of times it's not. It's just systemic. And and, and at some point we got to stop talking about it, you know, because we can push for good mental health and we can push this, this the message that take care of yourself. But if when you reach out to professionals and you hit these barriers that are socioeconomic, that are racial, that are biased based on gender or or sexual preference. Like mm-hmm. it's more to it than just getting up yourself and doing the work. We have to be met with competent, compassionate, fair people who will provide equal treatment, period, across the board. A hundred percent agree. And to your point that you mentioned the socioeconomic issues, I also need need to acknowledge um, my socioeconomic privilege because it wasn't until um, I got the job where I currently have, where I'm mm-hmm. very well, very well compensated, excellent benefits that allowed me to be able to access that psychiatrist. The only reason I was able to get to her in the first place was because I had achieved some greater status. Mm-hmm. We could do a whole nother <laughs> episode about my observations going from poor to middle class to upper, and, and just seeing the, uh, you know, I had a similar experience becoming rich, like getting diagnosed um, and obtaining more money. And when you see what's going on behind the curtain, I'm like, I'm even angrier now. Right. Thing than I was before. Because before I only knew that I didn't actually know what was happening on the other side of the fence mm-hmm. or how the other side lives. And to see it, it's just, I'm like, this is disgusting. Mm-hmm. You don't even know the struggle that people are going through every day in other neighborhoods, on the other side of the tracks. It's, oof. It's, um, it's, it's terrible. I went through the same thing, you know. I knew that I was depressed. You know, I I knew I couldn't. Of course, I'm I'm not a, a doctor, but I knew something. We know when something is not right or something is wrong with us. So I knew that I was experiencing some type of mm-hmm. 
mental health trauma or or something, you know, and but I could not access the proper health care because I didn't have the socioeconomic status. I wasn't making the money. And so I had to go to these different groups. I did everything I could to try to find mm-hmm. therapy or support group. And they were just piss poor. They were not equipped. Mm-hmm. Also, the funding there mm-hmm. is like And those therapists, they are confirmed out. They have more yes. to keep up with and they are extremely poorly compensated. Like it is insulting. Like it should be insult to everybody that we have healthcare professionals out here making less than $50,000, even though they have a master's degree yep. and a family to feed. So again, these people that get into it, it's really a passion for the people. But those same people with that same passion can become, again, those piss poor therapists that I experienced if they are part of that system too long. Like we have to take, we have to take care of the mental health community, all, everybody, those with the illness and those that treat them. We have to treat the, we have to treat the whole body well. Absolutely. Yeah, but I hear you uh, spending years. <laughs> Man. In terrible care, then getting a couple bucks and like, oh, okay, okay. Now, right. we gonna, now we can get you that good care. Now we're gonna, now we have time to listen. Now we have time to diagnose you correctly and, you know, have three sessions with you. Wow, wow, really? Yes. Really? <laughs> this project is to try to find some affordable or free access to mental health care in each state. So I've started creating a database and it's hard. And even when I do find ones that are free or affordable, then you look at the reviews and people have not had positive interactions with these places. So it's really difficult. It is something I'm really passionate about. So I'm I'm pressing through, but it's sad. And I'm glad that you are talking about it because we only hear about a lot of times, you know, there is a stigma that is among the black community and the poor community because of familial issues and cultural issues. But not also, it could be a stigma because grandma mm-hmm. didn't have a good experience with therapists, a white you know, male therapist or a wife or even a black one. And this is what she passed on to her children, this knowledge or this idea that it's pointless and it's bad. So I am glad that you're speaking about these yeah. negative experiences and then working your way to finding a good positive experience. Yeah. So, like you said, it's the knowledge transfer and a lot of mm-hmm. Uh, the stigma in our community is a result of not receiving the right information or education about mental health. Many of us just have no idea what it is or what it means. That we still have people walking around that have no idea that depression is a disorder, not an emotion. Mm-hmm. When I say I'm depressed, I'm not saying I'm sad. That's a disordered state of mind. Exactly. It's sickness. Sadness is an emotion. So we we still haven't even begun to to use the right words, to inform people. So you can't, you almost can't um, fault the people for having a huge amount of stigma towards something when the information about it has been kept from them. Absolutely. And I definitely agree with that. So let's talk a little bit about what it was like for you personally when you got the diagnosis. I mean, like, did you have a sense of relief almost? Or was it like, okay, now what do I do? Like, and, and I know you said there was a stigma attached to this diagnosis and attached to bipolar disorder. What has that been like for you and how have you navigated through that? And I don't care about that stigma. I would say anybody that asked me, I would shout it from a hilltop. I <laughs> anybody that want to know can know it's not a secret because I understand and fully appreciate that the not talking about it is part of my story is why all of this happened. Talk about it because there's stigma. I would love to see. I'm, I know I'm not the only one. It's, it's so many people walking around with bipolar disorder. Some of them still undiagnosed and some of them are diagnosed and, and under treatment, but don't tell you. So you're left with this impression that somebody with a bipolar disorder is crazy, unstable. You never know how they're going to feel one moment to the next. And that's not the, the disorder at all. You have people thinking, oh, well, OCD is people who clean a lot. Wrong. False. Hoarding is an obsessive compulsive disorder. It is? Oh, yeah. You know why you didn't know that? Because you didn't read about it. You just listen. Yeah. I just said what grandma said or what you heard in the media, things like that. So the more we talk about it, the more we can change the image of what that disorder or what that disease looks like. So, no, I will talk about it. I'm a well put together, highly educated black woman and I'm bipolar. And I have healthy relationships. I'm not a wrecking ball. The only time you're going to be a wrecking ball is if you're undiagnosed or diagnosed and untreated. I'm employable. 
<laughs> I'm lovable. I'm funny. Like whatever you think it means, it's probably not that. If you haven't really opened a book up to study it or read about it or just get to know someone with that disorder, just go ahead and assume that you don't know much about it. Like as and not in an offensive way, but just approach it with curiosity. Approach it with curiosity. My family, I now know I have a family history on my father's side of mental illness. Or I actually knew that before. That was one of the things I had told um, my new psychiatrist when I met her. I'm like, I got a long family history of mental illness and that's why I'm depressed. And she's like, mm, I don't think this is depression. And then after she told me, it was like literally like that light bulb on top of my head just lit up because I knew I know what the symptoms of bipolar 2 are. Duh. But <laughs> could not see it in myself. Like, you need a doctor for it. I don't care what your education is, you know? I don't care that you're an oncologist. If you get cancer, you can't treat yourself. You need to go to the doctor. It's no different. It's no different for us as psychologists, psychiatrists. It was it was the light bulb moment, but it was, I already mentioned the rage, but yes, there was relief because the minute she said it, I knew she was right. Like, I just reviewed my whole life history History in like 30 seconds. It was like, oh my God, oh my God, how did I not know that? Mm-hmm. Uh, like that. And I knew she was right. And I knew she was going to advocate for me getting treatment. Like I knew my life was about to change. And it did. So yeah, that <laughs> shock, rage, relief, gratitude, grat- gratitude towards this woman, anger towards everybody else that missed it, anger towards those that didn't miss it and just decided it wasn't worth telling me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a huge ball of emotions. But I'm just, I'm probably even, I don't know if that's possible, but I'm probably even more of an advocate now than I was before. But I was, I was already railing pretty hard before. But now I'm like, yeah, we need to talk about it. And it, it shouldn't be a secret. So uh, other stigma towards mental illness, that's other people's problem. I don't have a problem. Therefore, I talk about it. Exactly. And I wholeheartedly agree. I, I've had people say, you know, we shouldn't talk about mental health and past traumas and that. And I'm like, well, you don't have to. <laughs> but I'm going to shout it from the rooftops because of where I was before I was diagnosed mm-hmm. with depression and before I knew this quality of life because my my entire quality of existence changed once I was able to sit down with someone who gave a damn. Yes. And lucky for me, she she woke, but she ain't like hyper. You see what I'm saying? Like she. <laughs> relate to me with the lingo yeah, and the yeah, yeah. black girl magic. It's just she understands the issues. She understands the racism. She understands all these issues that plague the black community. And yeah. she doesn't black explain anything to me. Ooh, yes. You know, Ooh. and I talk to her and we relate. And so for me, I'm going to tell anybody that will listen. I understand that you might have gone through some bad situations. I understand that you might have negative ideas of what therapy is, but just keep trying. Yes. Keep trying until you find that sweet spot because it is glorious on this side. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know, I remember. Again, I'm 34, but I can recall being in my 20s. Um, oh, one of one of the things my psychiatrist told me, she said for people with bipolar disorder, if they are given antidepressants, it can also make the depression worse because from chemically, bipolar depression and major depression depression are not the same. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, that explains literally all of my 20s. <laughs> wow. Oh my God, because once I got off antidepressant, I'm like, okay, I actually feel better. Like, what is going on? And got to the point where I refused to be prescribed another antidepressant. I kept telling everybody, like, no, they don't work for me. I'm done. I don't want to be on medication because I was on the wrong medication. Uh-huh. <laughs> I can recall being in my 20, maybe 27, 28, and bringing my mother to the porch of her house. And I was dead serious and told her, you know, my, I'm probably not going to make it to 30 was dead serious. It was the 4th of July. I don't remember what year, but I know it was the 4th of July. And I just told her, I'm not trying to scare you. I just don't want you to be blindsided. And I don't want you to think I'm being selfish, but I'm like, I need it. I need you to understand just how bad I feel every single day. And not that I don't have faith in myself. I think at some point I will grow tired. Yeah. And the disease will come stronger than I am. And I meant it. And she knew I meant it. And she she just sat there with me. She held my hand. You know, as a mother, she had to be honest. Like, I do not want you to do that. Please, please, please don't do that. But also, I hear you. I hear you saying that you're in incredible pain. 
and I wish I could do something for you. And it breaks my heart that I can't fix it. But that's that was where I was in my 20s. So to have the life I have now, like you said, man, once the right meds kicked in, I got the right treatment. I looked up and I I said, I told my mom, I'm like, it's like I've been in a dark room my whole life and somebody just turned the light on. Yes. Yeah. I'm looking around. Can we, I'm, I don't know if you could cuss, but I'm looking around like, what the? No. It's been here the whole time. Yeah. All these colors and all this vibrance and all this energy and motive. What? And I didn't see any of it. A whole decade, more than a decade of my life spent in that dark room. I'm glad you said something, too. You just you just mentioned how it's not like you're not trying. I'm glad that you said that because a lot of people need to know that you cannot pray your way out of mental illness. You cannot motivate yourself out of mental health issues. It's not about perseverance or determination or pushing. There is no way you need licensed professional help, period. And I understand, like you said earlier, the challenges that we face, but we have to work as a community to open doors for people. I remember when Obama had his affordable health care, still left out the poorest American, the homeless people. You know, all of that, all of those people were left out. And these are the people who are most in need and they're still being left out in the cold. So I am calling on professionals, politicians, policymakers, lawmakers to do something to be more inclusive. I'm sorry if you want to call it socialism. I don't give a damn. (laughs) That's what we need to make sure that everyone is covered under this umbrella. Then that's what we need to do. So I'm I'm so glad you said. So tell me how I know you said you you started your own practice. Was that correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So tell me more about how you worked your way into starting your own practice. Well, I should be clear that we're is very 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 new. It's a, a new business that was born out of my diagnosis and. That rage, it had to go to some, it had to go into something. Some people turned to the wrong things with that rage and I decided to do something productive with it. And that was starting this practice. It's not anything that's supposed to make me big bucks right now or anytime in the near future. It's not, I'm not the point, I compensate my therapist to the point where it's, it's hard for me to make a dime. Like I'm trying to solve both problems that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. I'm all the issue people I have access to care. I'm also trying to solve the problem with therapists uh, being poorly compensated, poorly benefited. If that's if you can make a word out of that, so I just became passionate about, like I said, the whole body and wanted to start something that will treat the whole body. If my therapists are not well, if they're burnt out, if they're tired, if they feel disrespected by me. If they're struggling to pay the bills, struggling to feed their kids, struggling to keep the lights on, how are they going to have what from what cup are they going to pour into into clients like they are? These are whole people, too. So, yeah, like I said, I wanted to solve both sides of the problem. People need better care and therapists need better treatment. And when the more (laughs) they're taken care of, the better they can take care of others. But you can't stress people out and put them in high stress situations and then think they can still go around and heal. That's not. You can't feed people from an empty pot. Right. That's not how that works. The same system that's robbing poor people of adequate care is also stomping its foot on the care providers. Them, the system, like I said, policy, government, insurance companies, the whole thing at the end of the day is a racket that disadvantage, like you said, disadvantages the people who need it most. So how do we help? How, how do regular folks like myself join this cause to make sure that our healthcare professionals are taken care of? Talking about it, exactly what we're doing right okay. now. Doing the right thing. Talk about it on the podcast. Talk about it in the hair salon. Talk about it at church. Talk about it at work. Talk about it at school. Be the crazy person. Like, that lady is always talking about me because I, I know in this crowded room of 25 people, that means about three or five of you have mental illness and you're being quiet about it. That needs to stop. I want a world where people can call into work depressed and it be a valid reason that nobody quite the same way they went question the flu. You know, you, you have employers out there that question the flu, but you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> Don't not ban eye depressed. Get in here. You're talking about you depressed. Girl, you got 10 minutes to be in the work. Mm-hmm. I want somebody to fully be like, I'm calling in today because I am experiencing a depressive episode and I need to rest 
and I need to call my doctor. I need to rest. I need to take care of myself and I need to go seek seek professional help. Therefore, I won't be coming in today. And I want to hear that boss or that HR person say, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry to hear that. Please go take care of yourself and let us know if there's anything we can do. That's where it starts. That sounds like a utopia there. Doesn't it? It's, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous that compassion is just is utopian. It's no, it's just basic compassion. Yeah. Somebody is not feeling well. Yeah. Treat them with compassion. Encourage, encourage them to take care of themselves. Especially, oh my God, especially someone who's depressed. Absolutely. Like that, that does nothing but help the negative self-talk that they have that they're not valuable. When we say, no, you you, you have to come into work. We think you're lying. We think you're being lazy. We think you're being dramatic. And you go, oh, that's funny because those are all the things I think about myself. Thank you for confirming. Thank you. Oh, Yes. You're not helping that person at all. So again, but that's the vicious cycle we're in. And that's why people end up, unfortunately, doing self-harm, whether that be, you know, drinking drugs or um, dying by suicide. Like those, those little ticks, all those little nits that society makes in one way or another, where you hear that what you have is not real. That's just you. Mm-hmm. That's just you being dramatic. You being a loser. That's just you because you're a failure. But that's just you because you're a burden. But if society didn't also send that message, I I actually watched this show last week and I wanted to, I went to scream. It was a an EMT and she had just re- responded to a scene where there was a suicide and she got on camera and she was saying how she hates doing suicide calls because these people are so selfish. And I don't I don't like that I have to go and waste my time on this when there are other people who actually want my help. And I'm like, OK, not only did she say it, but y'all didn't cut it from the scene like that. There's a conference table full of people that thought that was OK to go on TV. And I just was I thought I was hearing things like how is this on TV? But I wanted to be clear that that was a healthcare professional. So again, my again, you know, aligning with my history of less than pleasant experiences, some of the dramatic experiences with healthcare professionals, because this is even how they think about mental illness, how they approach patients that are presenting with signs of mental illness. They think this is a waste of my time. You're talking about how you're depressed, you want to kill yourself. Then 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 do it. I'm going to just walk away and go to another scene where somebody actually wants my help. Wow. Yeah. I've heard that before, sadly, you know, where people, even parents, you know, you want to kill yourself? Well, go ahead. Or you're going to go to hell or, you know, it's, we have a long journey ahead of us. (laughs) We are lacking compassion. Oh, absolutely. Well, listen, I definitely want to thank you for coming. You have dropped some serious gems and you have definitely reaffirmed in me my charge. You know, like I said, I'm not a doctor and I I don't pretend to be one. What I am is a person who was fortunate enough to be able to access mental health care. And I have seen the positive benefits of it. And so I want to continuously with every breath in my body to the last breath in my body, encourage people to keep doing the work, to keep searching, to keep looking. And there's a community of people behind you that are pushing just as hard as you are for your well-being. And I feel like you are doing the same thing with your company. So I know it's fairly new. Are you comfortable with like sharing the information and how someone can contact you, your group? Yeah, I didn't even mention, but I'm, I'm located in the Chicago area. The practice is called Rhapsody Behavioral Health Care. It's in Downers Grove, Illinois, but we are available to any resident of the state of Illinois for um, virtual or telehealth sessions. As long as you live in the state of Illinois, therapists can provide services to you. I myself am not one of the therapists. I know a lot of times uh, people hear me speak and they call and I'm like, I want to have sessions. Uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm just a business owner, but I have wonderful therapists that are available to, to help you and support you. Um, so yeah, if obviously you've heard me talk, I'm passionate about this. Yes. I'm passionate about everybody getting care. Um, and if you can't afford it, we would like, I will talk to you on the side. It is not that big of a deal. Yeah. Like I'm in it to help. 
and to make sure people don't have to wait 11 years uh, to get that right diagnosis. So yeah, Rhapsody Behavioral Healthcare, www.rhapsodybehavioral.com and Instagram at Rhapsody Behavioral. Awesome. Thank you so much. I, I hope that you will. And I'm going to take you up on that offer to come back and talk about the socioeconomic issue. I mean, I can talk about these things all day. And finally, okay. somebody who likes statistics. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people take this idea of what I'm trying to do is like, let's just give, you know, commentary on our experiences. But like, I want to also talk to people and have people express their thoughts and ideas based in fact and fact in academia. So I definitely appreciate you coming. I'm going to take you up on that offer to come back. Wonderful. Thank you for having me and thank you for doing the work. I'm, I'm, I definitely appreciate it. Thank you for doing the work. Thank you again, Sophia, for coming on this podcast and being so open and candid about your experiences. This was a conversation that needed to be had. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about the benefits and the good side of therapy, but we don't spend a lot of time talking to and encouraging people who are struggling to get access to that good mental health care, who are struggling going to therapist after therapist after therapist. And I'm hoping that Sophia's story will give others the hope and the encouragement they need to continue fighting. There is healing on the other side of this journey, but you cannot give up. Just know that you have a community of support behind you and keep pressing. We got your back. So before I go, I want to let you know that this is the last episode in this season. Season, not series. Sessions with my therapist is here to stay. And as the old folks in the church say, as long as the blood is running warm through my veins, sessions with my therapist will continue to bring you good content that is bringing positive vibes and hope. And so with that in mind, I put together a team, a brand new team. We've got some funding coming in and we've established a new media company, Black Girl Good Vibes Media. I'm excited to bring on my friend Monique Easton as my new co-host. If you'll remember, she came on and talked about her experiences with therapy and how it helped her to navigate through childhood her childhood issues, through her marriage and to living her best life. I'm also bringing on Carrie Holiday, who is an amazing media specialist. I mean, the girl is bad. Anime K is the bomb.com. She's coming on as our marketing specialist and staff writer. And I am excited to bring you new content. And it's going to be fire, I promise you. You know, when Natasha decided to leave, I was sad and I was discouraged. You know, I thought it was over and I second-guessed myself because I was listening to the naysayers who said I wasn't talented, who said I didn't have the skill, I didn't have this or that, you know, to go along with my expectations. But fuck that. (laughs) Everyone around me, has been supportive and they've encouraged me to keep pushing forward. And so that's what I'm going to do. I am so grateful for your support. I am grateful for you guys listening and sharing and just bringing me good energy and good vibes. You all have been amazing and I could not have made it this far without you. So I need you guys to stay up to date, continue listening, continue sharing, revisit the podcast, share them with your friends, make sure that you are subscribed, go to our website, Make sure that you put that sucker in your bookmarks so you can stay up to date on all things sessions with my therapist. Keep checking us out on Facebook for all information about what we're doing and so that you'll know when we have launched our YouTube. Yes, it's coming. I said it. We're going to YouTube. We are taking this vocal show on the visual road. And I am so excited. I hope that you are too. I want to thank you guys so much for listening from the bottom of my heart. I thank you so much for listening. I love you. And as always, I hope this helps. 